This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. You might know him by the name of One Bite with Davey Page Views. Perhaps you know him by the nickname Davey Day Trader Global. His name is Dave Portnoy, and he is the founder of Barstool Sports, and he has created a fascinating um, franchise on the internet, on social media, in videos that began essentially as a fanzine covering sports in Boston and helping people with their betting lines. And he has blown up into a full pop cultural phenomena. What's really intriguing to me is what he has built as an entrepreneur. He recognized the power of uh, original content. He ended up attracting uh, a dynamic cast of people who were similarly enthusiastic about creating um, fresh, funny, uh, in in many ways, um, edgy content. And he's just blown up into a full uh, phenomena. Barstool Sports is now part of a publicly traded company, Penn National Gaming. And if you are in the content business, if you are at all interested in sports or trading or a whole uh, lot of other stuff, including pizza, I think you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating interview. So with no further ado, my conversation with Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, I have an extra special guest. His name is David Portnoy, and he is the founder of the sports and pop culture blog Barstool Sports that has expanded into so many areas. I've really been looking forward uh, to this conversation. David Portnoy, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So let's Go back in time a little bit. You started Barstool Sports 17 years ago. At the time, did you have any idea what you were creating? What What did you expect this to be? No, I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen, the journey that was going to go on. And really, it didn't look any, well, I was going to say it didn't look anything like it did now, but it did start as a gambling fantasy newspaper. You know, it was a four-page black-and-white gambling rag they used to hand out around tea stations and subway spots in Boston. We've come full circle since we're now, you know, have a gambling app and got purchased by Penn National. So it did come full circle, but no, I had no idea. The truth of the matter is I always wanted to try to start my own business with the goal being I would rather work for myself than somebody else. I'd rather work, you know, a billion hours a week than the normal, typical work day where it was a nine to five, but I wasn't in control of my own destiny. But I had no idea what was about to come with Barstool. No clue. <laughs> and and you mentioned you're handing out written copies for pagers. I, I had heard way back when you were literally outside of the Boston Garden and outside of other Boston sports arenas handing this out to fans on the way into games. How, how much of that is urban legend, and how, how true is that? No, that's 100% true. So the typical day or week, however you want to look at when I started it, it was myself, and you know there'd be all these fake names in the newspaper because I didn't want people <laughs> to know it was a one-man job. You know, So I had made-up aliases for my sales guy, my marketing guy, all this stuff. But I would generally wake up about 4 in the morning, uh, go to a subway stop outside, 
you know, Boston in the financial district or wherever it may be, I'd rotate and I would hand out the newspapers as they were he- people heading into work. And, and I'd be yelling at people, like, grab this newspaper, take the newspaper. And then after I did that, so I'd go from wake up 4, get to the subway around 5, 5, 5.15, hand out newspapers probably till the morning rush was done, I don't know, 9 o'clock. Then I would go home and I would write. I would, I would do or call for sales ads or do everything else in the day-to-day. And then around 3.34, I'd head back into the city, and I would hand out newspapers again to catch people on the afternoon commute on the people's way home from work. And then after that was done, I would go back home, write some more, and try to get ads to do everything else. And the other huge part of what I did, the newspaper started off weekly in the beginning, but that was not the right way to do it. It turned to biweekly quickly, and I was also the newspaper delivery boy. So I bought this Astro van off Craigslist for about, I think, 1800 bucks is what I paid for it. And I would load up the newspapers all the way to the roof, and I would go on about a 24- to 48-hour paper route all around Boston, the suburbs outside of Boston, every single subway station loading up my news racks with the newspapers. So I'd come back looking, you know, disheveled to say the least. So that was, that was my life. No vacation days, no nothing. For probably about a decade, it was it was a grind. It was uh, what? delivering the newspaper, writing the newspaper, selling the ads, pretty much a one-man show. Really? What what was the response to the actual printed product? How did how did Bostonians feel about Barstool Sports as a four-page handout? People loved it. You know, it was very different. And in the early newspapers, I said I was looking for writers, and I got very lucky and that we assembled a terrific group of writers who stuck with me and worked for free for the early days just because they wanted to write, they enjoyed it. And so the content was very different and always evolving. It was always humorous. It was a different take, and and slowly morphed away from just strictly gambling and sports to more men's lifestyle. But it was always a good reception, and when I judge it, it would be if 10 people took the paper and said they enjoyed it, you know, the first time I did it, the next issue would be 20 people, and the next issue would be 40, and the next 80. So it always was slowly growing, and there was something in my gut that's like, I'm on to something here. I don't know what it is, but it, it felt like it was growing every single week, and it was. It was hard to put it into words, and I've also said this is the only business I've ever started, and obviously most businesses fail, especially in the print industry. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if I just got somewhat lucky and I'm one for one, and, and who knows. But I always have that gut feeling, hey, this is, this is picking up. This is, if I just stick with it, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. So I always got a good reception. So at what point did that growth ramp up to where the business outgrew your ability to run it if you're a jack-of-all-trades at a certain point, you can't do everything. When, when did it cross that line where, hey, I need some help to manage this? Yeah, probably. So it started around 2004, probably around 2010. We were more hiring other writers. But I really did a bunch of it. it, it people, the model I went with in the first employee I ever had who's still with me, who I call sales guy, you know, the model was, 
prove yourself and we'll pay you. You want to work for me? If you can sell ads, I'll give you a huge commission, 30% commission, 50% commission. There's no risk on my end. If you're willing to do it, you can do it. So we had a very, you know, prove it. Like if somebody said they wanted to work for us or could do something, it really was, we'll give you the opportunity, but you're not going to get, like you're going to have to earn everything you get. And once you earn it, then you get a spot at the table, so to speak. But it was, you know, we really did it bootstrap and watch cost and all that stuff once we switched so basically i did everything again we were able to get some advertisers and once we switched the website you know remnant advertising and banner advertising you didn't need a huge staff or force to really run the thing you needed more people to try to grow it more than anything and that was something i did consistently throughout Barstool's career is I didn't really take any profit or money off the table. Even when money started coming in, I just kept reinvesting it, reinvesting it, hiring more people, trying new events, trying new things to try to grow the brand. Let's talk a little bit about the team you mentioned earlier, because it's not just Dave Portnoy. You've gotten, pardon my take, KFC Radio, Chicks in the Office, Caller Daddy. Are you guys like the Avengers? Do you assemble the whole team and and go out, how does that mass come together? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, a lot of times I say we are one of the oldest digital media companies on the planet. So when I started Barstool, it was a newspaper, as we discussed, and then it morphed to a blog. And when we started blogging, if you told somebody what a blog was, they would have been like, what is that? We're very early to the game. <laughs> and I also say the Barcelona Sports was born from the Internet. So all of the talent, all of the people we have, the only way people know who they are is because they were able to essentially stand out by working harder, smarter, being funny. It's not because they put on ESPN or something like that. So we were born from a different generation, and we have a good eye for talent. In podcasting, we were very early, too, and we let our talent basically do whatever they want. As long as we think you're funny and it's like, okay, this person may have something, we'll let you run wild. So, you know, Caller Daddy is an example that is probably a pretty good one, and not everyone's cup of tea, but the largest female probably podcast in the world. I mean, it's gigantic, and it's a girl, Alex Cooper, who we saw a very rough sketch of a podcast she did. It's like, ooh, this is interesting. This is something we haven't seen before, and, and there was a promo video with it that was very slick. It looked like it was professionally done, so we reached out to her and had a meeting with her, and I, I sat down, and she's a beautiful blonde girl, and I was like, who made this? who made this video, this, this promo video? And she's like, I did. I edited it. I cut it. I did everything. I learned how to do it all myself. And that was when it's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to give her a chance because that's the type of, like, basically motivation, desire that we look for. Somebody who has something unique and also the, the basically the energy and the motivation to do something like that. And it exploded almost instantly. But And I barely listened to any of the episodes, but it was clearly something different. She was clearly a talent. We put the Barstool marketing engine behind it. And with podcasting right now, I think we have the number one hockey podcast, the number one football podcast, the number one female podcast. What our audience is very good at, they'll give you a chance. If you have something unique and good, you'll have a huge hit right off the bat. And 
ironic, well, not ironically, but one of the things I always said about Barstool or my goals once we started actually making progress and when I sold to Turner Group the first time, I wanted Barstool to be the place that a young college graduate who is in comedy, the first place they apply to work is Barstool. It used to maybe be Saturday Night Live or, or you know, I don't know, some other comedy brand. I wanted it to be us, and we're sort of there. So we have our pick of the crop of all these talented people. The hardest thing is actually going through the applications to find talent, and it's a huge advantage. Speaking of talent, you just signed a a deal with Deion Sanders. How on earth did that come to fruition? That's a giant name. Yeah, so we have another podcast that we uh, signed million dollars worth of game based out of Philadelphia. Again, something I never, I never heard of either of the guys, Wallow and Gilly. They're Philly legends, um, you know, very well known, actually. That, like, Gilly was the ghostwriter for Little Wayne. So we listened to their podcast, and right away we thought, oh, this is a hit. This is, we need this. And so we signed those guys. They were friends with Deion Sanders, who was looking for maybe new opportunities, opportunities to be himself, basically. Because when you're on a network, he's on NFL Network, you have to watch what you right. say, you have to be guarded. And right now, people want unfiltered. They want authenticity. So he was looking for a place where he could be himself. And it was one of those marriages, the second we met with him, we kind of knew that we were the right partner for each other. And, and to be honest, he has been – and it's, it's early – but he has fit into the Barcel culture as well as anybody possibly could. People would be stunned, the general public, on how many people, the talent at other established networks, who want to all come work for us because we're competitive pay-wise with all of them, maybe better, and there's no, there's no you know, restrictions. You can be yourself. We want you to be yourself. We're never going to say, hey, you can't say that. You can't say this. Everybody can be exactly who they are, and we find that that formula works for us, and a lot of people want to be a part of it. So we've seen some upstart digital brands that started on the Internet, like Vice and Axios, explode into the video space, uh, either with HBO or some other broadcasting um, channel. What are you guys thinking about in terms of Barstool Sports? Are we going to ever see that on a mainstream cable channel? I don't know. Uh, we had a, a brief dance with ESPN uh, for part of my take. They they greenlit a TV show, um, and then they canceled it because there were there were people at ESPN who don't like us, and we have our detractors uh, in ESPN. That that left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, I was hesitant of that deal to begin with. The thing that we need um, to do a deal like that is to find a partner who knows exactly who we are, who uh, did their research, who can stand by us. And the first time, you know, the wind blows maybe the wrong way, they don't run for the hills. I thought ESPN was wildly coward, uh, was cowardly in how they dealt with us. Um, and, you know, my instinct sensed it. So it would have to be the exact right, perfect deal. Because honest. Unlike a lot of digital media companies, we can bring people to network, which is TV and an older demo, like no other brand. We bring a lot more than I think they bring to us. So it would really have to be the absolute perfect deal for us to do that again. I think it would be more likely we buy a network, to be honest, and just run our own channel. 
So it sounds like you spend a lot of time thinking about business strategy and your overall media approach. How do you spend your day? How much of it is on creating content and how much of it is on these bigger picture? Hey, do we want to hook up with this company? Do we want to create something new with that company? That's one of the toughest challenges I have. Um, I think my role, me personally, and I'm sure maybe there's others like it, but I can't really think of anybody who is as involved in the content in a company as well as the big picture. Obviously, we have a CEO who's unbelievable, Eric Nardini, best hire we've ever made. But, you know, I, we work closely on almost everything, so it is a mix. Um, it varies. Like uh, the day trading stuff I'm still doing. Uh, we had a big deal that a lot of people know about with Penn National, and we just launched our Barstool Sportsbook in Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm pushing that now and doing content with that, but there's much larger discussions on the way to, you know, roll that out nationally and acquisitions and things we want to do. So it really varies day to day, but I'd almost say it's 60, 40 business versus content at this point. Huh. Quite interesting. You mentioned Eric Nardini. She's your CEO. How did you find her and, and what does she do for Barstool? So Erica, so, so basically... I sold half of Barstool Sports, 51% of the churning group, uh, in, I believe it was 2016-ish, 2016. And Barstool was about 10 to 15 people at that time. And we were, we were just didn't have time to do anything on the business side. It was all making content and making content and making content. And part of the thing I said when I met with Turner, I go, we got to hire a CEO to basically run the business side. I always felt we had this huge audience. But we weren't overly organized on the business side. We did a lot of, we just didn't do things that a lot of other similar companies were doing. And if we could, you know, get the business side in order, we'd be putting gas on a fire. So they agreed. And right away, one of the first things we did after the acquisition was set out to find a CEO. They hired a recruiting firm, high powered recruiting firm. They had 70, I think, interviews or so, all men. None of them made it to the second round. I just, none of them clicked. Uh, it was always they were telling us what we should do, and you should do this, you should do that. I think you should change this. I think you should change that. And it just didn't click. We had a woman by the name of Betsy Morgan who used to be the CEO of the Huffington Post. I'm a Nantucket guy. She, she spent time in Nantucket, and I was introduced to her, and she became, I think, our only, like, advisor. She was basically an advisor to Barstool. We hit it off. And one day, she was in the, my neck of the woods in New York. She's like, you want to meet for a coffee? I was like, sure. So I walked over, and with her was Erica Nardini, who was, was friends. So Erica just happened to be there for the, for the coffee. And Erica and I started talking, and she was a fan of Barstool. And everything she said that she liked about Barstool and the business model, I was like, yep, that's what I think. That's what I think. So after Erica and I met, I called the churn guys. And I was like, have you ever heard of Erica Nardini? They had. She was a former CMO of AOL. And, like, I just met with her, and I love her. Like, I think she's the perfect fit if she's willing to do it. So they reached out to Erica to gauge interest. She had just started her own company. So she was like, let me think about this for a day or two. And she came back. She's like, yes, this is too good of an opportunity to pass. Let me meet with the guys. 
Um, and she did, and that started the process. So it was unintentional. A lot of people, one of my pet peeves is a lot of people say we hired Erica because she's a female. It was an all-male company, and it just couldn't be further, further from the truth. It's insulting to me. It's insulting to her. But she has been the absolute perfect hire and, and the most important hire that we've had. Let's talk about something that is really serious. You're part of Penn Gaming. How did that come about, and what's it like being part of this giant company? Yeah, as we mentioned in the early parts of the interview, Barcel Sports actually started back in the newspaper days as a gambling and fantasy rag, as a newspaper I handed out. About a year and a half ago, I don't know the exact date, but the legislation on sports gambling was overturned in the United States. So always it had been illegal, and now it was going to be legal, and on a state-by-state basis, states could decide whether they want to allow it. Once that law was changed, I basically knew this was a huge opportunity for Barstool because our core DNA was sports gambling. So, And I knew there was going to be basically a gold rush of all these companies trying to get in this industry. So we had meetings with everybody under the sun, Vandal, DraftKings, MGM, Stars Group, you name it, we met with them. And, you know, none of them actually yielded a solid offer, which stunned me, which absolutely stunned me because I thought it was a no-brainer fit that one of these companies should acquire Barstool would give them a gigantic com- competitive advantage because how good we are at acquiring clients. And then we met Penn National Gaming and Jay Snowden, the CEO, And almost instantly, we clicked with them. I had actually never heard of them, and primarily because they're a huge regional casino operator, and all the casinos are operating, or most of them, under unique names. So, you know, they're all different. Like, I had been in their casinos, but I didn't know that I had been in their casinos, if that makes any sense. So we met with them, and it was a perfect marriage because they had this huge – casino brand, which grants them access and licenses into so many different states, but they didn't have a well-known brand. We have a well-known brand, but no access. So the deal was struck, basically, that Penn National would, they bought a, like I think it's 36% with the option to buy more in three years and get the whole company, and they would lead their sports gambling efforts with our brand. So the Barcelona Sportsbook, which just launched on Friday in Pennsylvania, and will be rolling out across the country in states we have access. So it's the perfect kind of mix of Penn having all these physical properties and the licenses, and Barstool having the online presence and digital marketing, combining forces to hopefully become one of the premier gambling companies in the United States. So you have some pretty big competitors in that space. You have DraftKings, FanDuel, there's lots of other smaller entities. How does Barstool compete with the the big guys, and what is your specific advantage that nobody else seems to be able to match? So, yeah, and they are big. They're big competitors, and, and I know them intimately because we've been working with those guys for a decade. Like, at one point, DraftKings, I was offered equity in just so they could lock us up exclusively for advertising. This is a long time ago. So we know those guys well, and they're not going anywhere. They've done very well with what they've done, and they have a huge database. What we're good at is, and what 
why Penn invested, because we can reach our crowd, our audience, who's wildly loyal and wildly engaged, and get them to download the Barcelona Sportsbook app, play, place bets through us without spending really any money on marketing. So right now, what you have is a marketing war. If you watch a football game, you'll probably see 37 different ads from, you know, 10 different companies all basically saying the same thing. Come bet with us. Come do this. You get $10 here, $100 there, free $500 bet. It's all whitewash. There's so much of it. In a weird way, it's like a race to the bottom. There's only going to be so many of these companies that can survive. We will compete and compete effectively while most likely being profitable, which will be probably the only company that can say that because we're not going to have the marketing costs that these other companies have. They have to spend, spend, spend to get any share or else they won't get it because no one really cares about DraftKings versus FanDuel versus MGM versus PointsBet. They don't. With us, they're playing with us because of our logo, because it's a 17-year story, because they root for us. That's why I think if you look before we did the deal with Penn, there was like a handful of Robinhood traders who owned it. Now it's over 100,000 Robinhood traders. That's a marketing army. People wear the merch. They root for us like we're a sports team. So it's all that is what the competitive advantage is. Huh, really interesting. So, so given how much of what you've been doing – for the previous 17 years, has been driven by sports and betting. What went through your mind when suddenly in March the NBA cancels the season and soon after almost all other sports grind to a halt? You, you had to stop and say, well, I guess we're on vacation for six months or do I need to come up with something new? Yeah, well, it, that's the great thing about I guess the way Barstool has been trained, like I said, born from the Internet, vacation certainly didn't cross my mind. It's, okay, we got to reinvent ourselves or do something different. So I was never worried that once sports went away for a little bit, somehow our content would suffer. You know, the day trading thing, which I started doing when sports went away, because like, okay, i got to pass the time somehow. The stock market's open. I'm going to start dabbling with that. I never imagined it would become what it had become. But at the same time, and I've said this to Erica, our CEO, when, when she came in. We've been around for 17 years. We've stayed relevant for 17 years. I'd say we've stayed edgy for 17 years. We've stayed cool for 17 years. That is almost our biggest accomplishment. So many brands like ours or, or in this space, they come and they go. I've seen them a million times. It's not an accident that we've stayed relevant. We've always reinvented ourselves. We've always had something new. So... You know, it's just the latest generation, and I'd argue that outside the obvious negative impact of quarantine and the pandemic, for Barstool and eyeballs and growth and presence, it's been a very beneficial time. Like, we grew in page views. We grew in how, how many people knew us. Our footprint, our impact has never been stronger because people had not, nothing to do, nothing to consume, and we were consistently on the cutting edge of putting out content, not just myself, but like Dan, Big Cat, you know, he has, he never twitched. This is one of our bigger stars. He had never been on Twitch. He went on Twitch and played an old college football game and created a fictional college football coach. He became the number one Twitch stream on Twitch within like three weeks, which is wild to think about. So we've always been very good at being creative, 
reinventing. And that's because, not to say it again, but we're born from the Internet. If you're not creative, if you can't create waves, if you can't get people to pay attention to what you're doing, I probably wouldn't have found you in the first place. My special guest today is David Portnoy, better known as Davy Day Trader. How on earth did the idea of videotaping yourself day trading come about? Because when you think about it, it's not the sort of thing that lends itself to an obvious visual medium. Well, well, take us through the process as to how that got launched. So uh, uh, once quarantine hit, we needed something to do, something to pass the time. And we're searching for answers. So the stock market was still going. And, and one day, I, I decided almost as a gimmick, you know what, I'm going to throw on a full suit. I got a little, I got a little bell like I was ringing the stock exchange to start the day and made a quick right. video and put it on. And, and, you know, it clicked. Like, people were interested. Like, all right, this is interesting. And I never know what's going to work or what people are going to like. It's no different than my pizza reviews that I do. Yeah, I, I didn't start that with some grand plan that was going to become the preeminent pizza review guy in basically the world. But it was obvious when I did it, people were paying attention. So I started with that one video in the suit ringing the bell. And the next day, I put a you know a live stream on for a couple minutes trading stocks and and people tuned in and were fascinated. So the next day I did it again. More people paid attention. And it, it was just one of those organic things. And it was real, like everything we do. I was trading with real money, and I was getting killed in the beginning, which is always there's that, you know, it's a train wreck, but you can't look away vibe. So it was very <laughs> clear right away that people – we're interested in watching it. And like you said, I heard you, it's colorful, it's different. I don't think anybody on Wall Street had ever seen somebody like myself basically doing what I was doing on Wall Street with large amounts of money and, and being very upfront about it. And, you know, it, it was just very different. There isn't much out there like what the Davy Day Trader stick was. So it clicked. It certainly did click. I recall back in either March or April seeing an early video of yours. You're having a meltdown because you're losing a ton of money. And I remember saying to myself, either this guy is the greatest actor in the world or he is really getting buried in, in trades today. And it was you described it perfectly. It was a train wreck. You could not look away. Right. And, and also there was an early element to it. I didn't know what they're doing, clearly. And I don't even mean with stocks. Like, I couldn't figure out the platforms. I couldn't figure out necessarily how to trade things. I was making mistakes. So those meltdowns were very real because it isn't the easiest thing to use right away. you got to kind of get used to it. So that element of it certainly captured people's attention. And then, obviously, I have a very large fan base who know me and know my personality, and they're interested to see what's going on. So... Sports was canceled, but it was a sport in a different kind of way, really. It's people are paying attention to how I do daily. And then, obviously, it started getting picked up within the financial Twitter community. Then it started getting picked up by the networks who, in my mind, were kind of making fun of me in the beginning. But I don't really care. It's like any time we can get publicity, that's good for overall Barstool. And then, oh, then I started winning. And then it kind of changed the tone of it. And it's been an interesting ride. It, it, I mean, I think 
I may be for the last couple months. I shouldn't say maybe. I'm the most talked about person on Wall Street. If you told me that was going to happen six months ago, I would have looked at you like you had 10 heads. What are you talking about? Yeah, and you're now up to 1.8 million Twitter followers. When you started live streaming your, your day trading, you didn't quite have that same size following, did you? Uh, it was big. I don't know what it is. We definitely have far more people now. Uh, the live stream always is, you know, four to 5,000 people concurrently on it at once. I don't know what I had. It's definitely picked up. It's a new demo. It's a new audience. But, you know, Twitter actually is super hard to grow your, your user base. So it hasn't grown dramatically. Huh. And, and how well thought out is your, your trading? Do you go in with a plan? Do you have a strategy? Or are you just looking at whatever is moving and catches your eye? It's all over the map. It really is. There is strategy to it. I'm always looking at earnings and what I think. I'm using, you know, my own logic in regards to what I think maybe a good COVID or not COVID stock is. And then it could be, for example, you know, I, I was on vacation for a week and a deer I woke up, there was a deer outside my window. Like, it was very beautiful, actually. But anyways, I saw the deer, and I thought that was a sign, so I bought John Deere. So it, it can <laughs> really be anything. It can be all over the map. Right. How, how did that trade work out? Very good. Their earnings were actually the same day. That's why I thought it was a no-brainer. So they had great earnings. <laughs> That's very funny. So the question that it, you kind of raise is, so let me, let me back up and ask this. So you've talked about losing $600,000 in a day. I don't care. Markets are going to go up eventually. I'm going to make this back. How much does a half a million dollar swing affect your psyche, or are you able to just put it behind you? It really varies. So when I started, I was down about 2 or $3 million instantly. Almost, I was shorting stocks, which I don't do anymore uh, because I got killed, and that's the main thing I've gotten killed on. And then I ended up being up about $4 million at my height. I am now up probably about one the last couple of weeks has knocked three legs out. That doesn't bother me at all because I'm up. When you're down, it's a lot harder to go further down. But I do overall believe if you just hold and you have the time to hold, stocks will always go up. Like So unlike sports gambling where the clock strikes zero, and the game's over, and you owe, the stock market really doesn't do that. It keeps going. So as long as you have time on your hands and patience, which I don't, but if you do, <laughs> then you're always going to get it back. So, you know, I lost a million dollars, I don't know, like last week. That didn't bother me at all. I didn't lose like an ounce of sleep. That's the game. That's just the game. So, so let's stick with stocks only go up. That's true if you're buying broad indexes or buying broad asset classes. Hey, stocks as a whole always go up. But as we've learned over the years, individual stocks can go to zero. How do you balance that when you're trying to decide what to trade? Yeah, and, and that's a fair point. I think there's a misconception about the stocks I'm involved in. Like, Shopify's not going to zero. Amazon's not going to zero. A lot of stocks I'm in... I'm not in panic stocks, and if I am in panic stocks, small stocks, if I'm in stocks like that, I'm not holding them very long. So 
those aren't going to zero, and you could get killed quickly. But I, I, a lot of my stocks are brand names, and I am buying and selling them. So those are what I'm referring to. If you're going with a penny stock or something that's you know under five bucks, clearly there's risk involved. And things happen. Like Nikola the other day, obviously, the guy got accused of fraud, the CEO, and he steps down, and that takes a bath. So you take that risk. But by and large, as long as you're not you know, dealing in high volatility, like if you buy, what was it, Hertz when they're bankrupt, or Kodak, and you think those, those I'm not saying always go up. Who knows with those? But I, those I'm in and out of. The stocks that I'm saying always go up, are stocks that truly always go up. Huh. And and you mentioned traditional Wall Street hasn't really been very welcoming. Who on the street has reached out to you? Who do you have a good relationship? Who's got some longevity in finance and says, "Hey, here's a new guy drawing a lot of attention. Let's let's give him a hand." Yeah, and, and I should clarify. I think a lot of people on Wall Street actually love it. I get so many comments that people who work on Wall Street. You know, it's refreshing. It's a breath of fresh air. Even though you're making fun of us, we find it funny. The clowns on Wall Street and FinTwit, the FinTwit guys are really the ones that I would say haven't been welcoming because they're used car salesmen. They're the ones trolling, saying, "Give up." They're trying to. They need money. They need to convince people that they're smarter than you. And you can't invest your own money. And the only way to be safe, you know, a Ross Gerber. You're going to give Ross Gerber your money or else you're going to lose it all. I mean, he's a clown. But the people who are doing this the right way, I, I feel like they've been pretty inviting. Uh, Jim Cramer has been super, super friendly from the beginning and, and welcoming to me. And, you know, most of the networks are. But the, the issue is the guys who have been saying the stock market is going to crash, for the last six months, and it hasn't, it's going to end in tears, and you better give them their money because you don't know how to spend your money. Those are the guys that don't like me. And I don't know why people do that, by the way. I don't know. That's one of the things I found interesting is there's a lot of these talking heads who are seemingly rooting for the stock market to crash. Like, they want people to lose money. I don't understand that. I feel like everyone should be on the same team. The stock market goes up. Everyone should be happy. If everyone's on the same team, who's going to take the other side of your trades? Well, that's something that I'll have to let the scientists and the mathematicians find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, so it's fascinating. But by the way, I've been on the street long enough that I've seen this debate take place. I saw it in 06, 07, before the crash, 99, 2000. There's always a contingency that missed the run-up, and they're waiting for the next big move down so they could make up what they lost. And then some people philosophically are more intrigued by the idea of a crash. It's just their personality. They think markets get shellacked and, you know, that's when everything becomes more intriguing. I, I can't explain the psychology behind it, but I can tell you it's been there for as long as markets have been around. I believe it. And the, and the thing that I find, I don't want to say, well, it's just funny to me is for six months, I've been told I'm gonna. It's gonna end in tears. People have been listening to me. Are gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna ruin them. First of all, I'm only trading my own money, and I'm very clear. Do what you want. But if you were listening to me, you'd be up. And the second the stock market has one bad day or two bad days, even a week, they're chirping me that from the cheap seats, being like I told you. <laughs> like, what are you talking? Right. I'm still way up. I don't know. It went down for a couple of days. 
That happens. So, but right. they are, they go silent, they're crickets. When the stock market's going up, it goes down for a second and they come out of the woods nuts. And, and let, me, let me put some numbers on, on that. From the March lows, the NASDAQ 100 is up 77%. And over the past couple of weeks, it pulled back almost 11%. You're still way, way ahead if you were bullish from the lows forward. There's a ways to go before the bears can declare victory. Correct. Correct. So I'm up overall over a million right now. And I was, before I started my comeback, I was down three. So I went down big in the hole right away. But that's how big the comeback was. It's a big and that's swing. how strong the stock market was. So, so you've interviewed or been interviewed by a number of interesting people. You mentioned Jim Cramer. How did the interview with President Trump come about? That's absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. All I know, it was the same week I was on vacation, and I think I did the interview on a Thursday, if I recall, and one of my guys who works for me called me late Wednesday. They're like, President Trump wants you to interview him in the Oval Office. And... Or in the uh, Rose Garden, excuse me. And I was like, what? That was basically my reaction. It wasn't like a previous conversation or anything. It was like, okay, is that serious? I'm not an interviewer. I really have never conducted an interview. But it was the President of the United States. And to be honest, we had to give a thought because he's such a lightning rod. There's very few people who are like, ah, I'm neutral on him. You know, you either despise him (laughs) or you love him seems to be the case. And I've always said... Almost like an old Michael Jordan, you know, blue states and red states buy T-shirts. I want everyone to like us. Right. So that was the only thing going in. It's like, oh, this is, half the people are going to be great. Half the people are going to say I'm the devil just by associating with him, even though he's the president. Um, but it was a no-brainer. It, it, it is a huge no-brainer honor. for sure. Yeah. What What yeah, was the experience like honor. showing up at? You show up at the White House. You get to the gate and you say they ask for ID. Take us through the rest of the day. What What was the highlights of that? Well, the whole thing was surreal. So I've never been to the White House. Um, and, and it's hard to put it into words. You're walking through, they're giving you the history lessons. They're telling you everything. I felt like back in high school getting the entire, you know, description. And then, to be honest, it was fairly intimidating. because, And I don't get intimidated sure. easily. I've been in a lot of situations. But... You know, they limit how many people can be there. Like Erica, our CEO, wasn't allowed to be in the room, and it's all his people around you in a circle. And I hadn't met him before the interview started, and I wanted to conduct, you know, a good, interesting, fair interview. Not overly political, because I'm not, but, you know, a good, interesting thing that people would be interested in. So it was a surreal, surreal experience, and one that I'll really never forget. But, yeah, it's hard to believe that it happened, to be totally honest. I think a lot of a lot of people share that sentiment, and, and I found it to be absolutely fascinating. So I have to talk about, I'm going to pivot now from the White House to something that everybody uniformly loves, and that's pizza. H- how on earth did One Bite with Davey Page Views come about? What, what was the thinking, I want to, I want to review every pizza place in Manhattan? Yeah, so this this would probably be, if someone wants to describe how Barstool stumbles upon, upon ideas, This the pizza thing may be the most apropos example. Essentially, 
five years ago, myself and another employee got in a debate. If you could only eat one food the rest of your life, what would you eat? I said pizza. He said burritos. And You had the right we, answer, by the way. I agree. And so we actually like, okay, we're going to do it. So for about a month, that's all we ate. Morning, breakfast, lunch, dinner, I just ate pizza. And I'm doing it. And I'm like, well, I'm eating so much pizza. I might, I might as well start ranking these things. So I, take, I just say, here's my knee jerk. I'll take one bite. Here's the score. And, you know, it started catching on. People were, they, they were, they liked watching these things. We were in Boston at the time. And then we're moving to New York. I'm like, all right, New York's known for what? Pizza. I said, I'm going to try every, every place when I went there. It was kind of an offhanded comment. But when we arrived, I did a couple. And, and the response is overwhelming. Everybody loves pizza. Everybody likes debating about pizza. It also, the fact that I just happened to walk out in the street and do it there, you start running into all these characters from New York, and it became almost more than the pizza. It became a lifestyle thing because you got to see the, the citizens of New York, and, and it just exploded. It is by far the most popular thing we do. It's what I am best known for. And it spans every age, every demographic. And I always see different stats on it. People like it got 200,000 views on YouTube. Very rarely are people adding up. It's on every social media. It's, it's probably about 3 million unique views across all the platforms every single day. It's insane. That, that is insane. I, some of them that stood out to me, well, one, you have the cast of Tag, including John Hamm and Ed Helms, and a girl recognizes you. She doesn't recognize anybody else. Walking down the street, a young woman, and she starts talking to you. Then she recognizes John Hamm, and you you bring her into the review and say, okay, take a bite. You know the rules. One bite, what's the score? Don't forget the decimal point. And then, bang, suddenly she sees Ed Helms behind her and, and has a a meltdown. What, how surreal is this when people, New Yorkers, just come up to you on the street while you're doing a, a pizza? Yeah, I mean, that, well, that was an ego boost, obviously, the one you just said <laughs> when you're standing with, you know, five A-list stars and the girl recognizes you amongst them all. I'm used to it. I've always said that this was not just pizza to our salespeople when we're selling ads. If you actually want to see the power of Barstool Sports, just come walk around the streets with me. Like, come walk with me, come walk with a couple of our guys. We've become very well-known, approachable people. And, you know, it's always astounding to people who don't really get the power of Barstool when they see us out and about, just how many people love the brand, come up to it. I don't leave my apartment anymore at all. I, I know 50% of the people I just walk in the street are going to come up and say hello. That's just, it's been a wild ride from working in my parents' basement and being embarrassed or not embarrassed, but when someone asks me what I do, no one's going to have to explain, well, it's this little newspaper I hand out, and I know you're not going to know what it is, to almost 100% recognition now wherever we go. It has truly been an insane ride to this point. To, to say the very least, have, have you crossed a thousand pizza reviews yet? How, what number are you up to? I think we're probably at like seven or 800. We All have right, the so app, come... which is, by the way, the best way for anybody who wants to find good pizza. If you go to the app store, onebite.app, people can upload their own videos, their own scores. It's, I use it myself. It, it is the best way to find good pizza near you. 
So, so let's talk about not just good pizza, but best pizza. What's your best favorite slice in New York? And then I'm going to ask you a, a, a twist on that and see if I can throw you. So what's your favorite slice in New York? I know the answer. It's one of mine. Say it out loud. John's a bleaker. That, that is such a safe bet. It's such fantastic pizza. You simply cannot go wrong with that. Tell us, here's the twist question. Tell us a slice that you really enjoyed that was a giant surprise, that you weren't expecting it to be that good, or a wow. very less-known pizza place. Hmm. You know, there's a bunch in Pennsylvania uh, they have like these tomatoes. I'm trying tomato pie pizza. I, I've knocked this so many. I'm gonna draw a blank on what they are. I know I love those. There was one in Minnesota. There's so many. I, I this this I'm gonna draw a blank on the best slice I was surprised by. Yeah, I don't know. I, I that, that my brain I think is slowly dying. I've done so many. The the I can't think of that. I can't think of the surprising one. You know why? Because most of the time. I can't be surprised. With pizza, the audience is always correct. So if a lot of people say, hey, go to this place, go to this place, go to this place, it's going to be great, it generally is great. There is one that I thought was a little, now that I'm thinking about it, I drove like, oh, uh, Little Vincent's is an overrated one. I don't mean to crush them with the, you know, cold, cold cheese on it in Huntington. That was one that tons of people... Uh, I know there's one in, I want to say, Park Slope that I didn't give a great review to, and the people are so passionate. They said they had killed me if I've ever went back there. Kind of joking, kind of <laughs> not. L&B's, L&B in Brooklyn, I thought was a little bit overrated. I guess my brain's starting to go here. I don't like to throw out the overrated ones, but um, right. I guess I just did. So you'll travel. You'll go to the Outer Boroughs. You'll go to Brooklyn, Queens, elsewhere. And you did a great, uh, I don't want to obsess on pizza, but you did a great um, a review with somebody I've had as a guest on the show, John Taffer. I, it's the first time I've seen you genuinely surprised by one of your reviewers' ability to really explain exactly what was going on in a slice of, uh, a slice of pizza. Yeah, well, I love John. I mean, we've had a long relationship with him. Uh, years and years and years ago, we did like a mock bar rescue where he was saving Barcelona Sports. We went in, he was screaming at us. It was the first time we met him, and the relationship has really blossomed. He is the only guy who has done two reviews. That's how, uh, that's how much I, I actually love him. I've been on bar rescue before, so he's, he's the best. John Taffer is the best. Yeah, he's, he's terrific. I know we only have you for a limited amount of time, so let me jump to our speed round. These are the five questions we ask all of our guests, so we have a little bit of a baseline to compare everything to. Tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix shows, Amazon Prime, or, or whatever podcasts uh, you're listening to. I was catching up on Schnitz Creek, who won all those awards, actually, the other night. But I don't watch much TV. I watch sports and my favorite show, which is not on TV right now. I love Succession. Interesting. Tell us about uh, some of your mentors. Who helped shape your career, whether it's in publishing or trading or anything? 
nobody, I would say. I haven't really worked for anybody. My, I will say, when I did my first deal with Turner Group, they asked who were the business inspirations or who did I want to model. So I guess this would answer it. And it was Jimmy Buffett and Rob sure. Geerdick, two widely different people. But uh, two guys who basically took a small thing that they did and turned it into a lifestyle brand. So Jimmy Buffett, you know, sings about beaches and bars and turned it into bars, books. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So taking something, one concept, Rob Deerdick was skateboarding and really making an entire lifestyle brand that you can sell across every channel. So those those are my two inspirations, I guess, or models, I should say. Hmm, interesting. Have you been doing much reading under lockdown? Tell us, tell us some books or other things you're reading that that you've yeah. been enjoying. Yeah, no, reading is for suckers. <laughs> I'm one of those guys that believes, you know, if TVs were invented before books, books wouldn't exist. So I don't know. It's like if you drive around on on square wheels, like why why would you do that? That the circle wheels. <laughs> That's very funny. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in becoming an online entrepreneur? I always say just do it. I've met so many people, uh, and even when I started, all my friends like, hey, we're going to do this idea with you, and everyone hemmed and hawed and had excuses and this and that. There's nothing like doing it. There's nothing better than just getting up and doing it. Don't talk about it. Don't make excuses. If you fail, you fail. There's a million different reasons why something can't be done. But in today's age, especially with the Internet, there, there's no reason for you not to be doing it. Like, prove it. Do it. Don't do it for money. Do it because you just need to do it. That is my best advice. Just get out and start. You don't know where it will take you. Like, I didn't know Barcelona would end up being this. You just got to get your oars in the water. I like that expression. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing, stocks, and trading today you wish you knew back when you were first getting started? Not to short stocks, and stocks always go up. I'd be probably $3 million richer. Thanks, Dave, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Dave Portnoy. He is the founder and El Presidente of Barstool Sports. If you enjoyed this interview, well, be sure and check out any of our prior 300 such conversations. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Acast, wherever finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a review at Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. My recording engineer is Charlie Vollmer. My producer is Michael Boyle. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Our research director is Michael Batnick. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.